Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the blessings of the week past, for Thy daily providential care. We thank Thee, our God, that as we face all the problems and difficulties of life, we have the blessed assurance of Thy presence and Thy protecting care. Make us ever mindful, our Father, of our duty to obey Thee, to serve Thee, to magnify Thy holy name, and to enjoy Thee forever. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let us turn to the second epistle of Paul, to the Thessalonians. Second Epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that she may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes the richness of the language of Scripture conceals its meaning from us. Paul is comforting the saints of Thessalonica who are being persecuted. One means whereby he comforts these saints is by reminding them of the judgment of God which is certain and the certainty of hell. Hell, then, is given as a comforting doctrine to the saints. Let us analyze, therefore, the doctrine of hell and its meaning in Scripture. But before we 
deal with the biblical doctrine of hell, let us analyze the kind of hell that is being promised us here and now by various persons. The first thing that comes to mind, of course, is atomic warfare. And a few years ago, when a summary statement was made of the present situation at that time of atomic warfare, it was summarized in this fashion, and I quote, In theory, the 100 megaton bomb is a staggering conception. It is a dirty-duck bomb. Its hydrogen core is surrounded by a jacket of natural uranium to increase deliberately the amount of fallout. The chilling equations of nuclear physics can be applied to calculate its destructive force. It would dig a crater nine miles across, knock down a brick house 19 miles from ground zero. Third-degree burns would be produced on all unprotected people within a radius of 50 miles. Grass, trees, and frame houses would be ignited 60 miles away. The fallout would persist for years over the northern hemisphere. The two to five megaton ICBM warheads now in the stockpiles of both the U.S. and the Soviet Union are already city busters. With traditional military conservatism, both sides have adopted the overkill philosophy. Bomb material has been produced to build an estimated 80,000 weapons, Enough one scientist has grimly observed to take off the top inch of soil in both countries. This data is five years old. More recently, General Rothschild in his book Tomorrow's Weapons has said that these weapons are a little old-fashioned and obsolete. The newer weapons are far more thorough and far more deadly. Thus man believes that he has reached the point where he can destroy the earth. What is his mood in the frame of, in the face of this? Friday I was reading in J.B. Priestley's Literature on Western Man, and one passage in particular startled me because Priestley, in discussing the novelist Thomas Wolfe, author of You Can't Go Home Again, cites a passage from Wolfe as expressing faith and hope. I read it over again, and I realized this is far from anything I consider faith and hope, because this is what the passage said, and I quote, Man was born to live, to suffer, and to die. And what befalls him is a tragic lot. There is no denying this in the final end. But we must, dear Fox, deny it all the way. End of quote. In other words, our destiny is death. There is no hope. What is our hope? We're going to live as though it doesn't, death doesn't exist, and ruin doesn't exist, and we'll deny it all the way. This kind of self-delusion is called hope.
But thanks be to God, we are spared either from the military or the mental horror that the modern world presents us. Because there is a hell. Because there is the justice of God. And because there is a hell and because there is the justice of God, man can never turn this world, God's creation, into hell. God created the world good. He is redeeming it and will recreate it. And those who oppose his task of recreation, those who through their wickedness seek to destroy the earth, will only end up in God's cosmic dumpy hell. Before we analyze the doctrine of hell, let us examine the word hell. What does it mean? There are two words in the Bible which are used to describe hell, or rather four words, but basically two, each of them having a Greek and a Hebrew form. The first word, which is also translated as hell, in the Greek is Hades, H-A-D-E-S, and in the Hebrew, Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. Now, Hades, or Sheol, does not refer to what we think of when we say hell, even though it is often so translated because we have no other word in the English. Hades, or Sheol, has reference to the place of departed spirits. It refers, therefore, to both heaven and hell, to either one or both of the places of departed spirits. And when in the Apostles' Creed, in the original Greek, it read that our Lord descended into Hades, translated into English, he descended into hell, it did not mean by Hades what we mean by hell. Because, of course, our Lord said to the thief on the cross, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise, today. So our Lord, at his death, declared he should be in paradise. Now, paradise is included within the term Hades or Sheol. It refers to the world of the departed. This, then, is the first word which is translated as hell, but it is not what we mean normally by the word hell today. The second word is Gehenna or Hinnom. Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, or Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. Now, Gehenna, or Hinnom, in the Old Testament, and in New Testament times as well, had reference to a particular valley, a place. And it was a place of human sacrifice in the days of the Canaanites. In particular, it was the locale for the sacrifice of children. We read repeatedly in the Old Testament about children who were passed through the fire unto Moloch, that is, were sac sacrificed 
to Moloch. This was done at Hinna. The place was a place there for afar to all believing Israelites. And therefore, in process of time, they made it because it was an undesirable place, the dumpy for Jerusalem. Thus at Gehenna or Hinnom there was always fires burning, consuming the rubbish and the trash, and there was always worms working their way through the piles of garbage, so it was a place of continual fire and of corruption. And as a result, the word that came to mean the place of evil spirits was borrowed from the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna. Because hell was seen properly as the dump heap of the universe. And the imagery of hell is drawn from the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. It is a place, therefore, where the rubbish of the universe is perpetually burned and subject to corruption. This immediately gives us an idea of what hell is like. First of all, hell is where life is wasted. It is the dump heap of the universe, a place of corruption and of burning in the sense that man is perpetually consumed by his own total frustration by his own gnawing terror. Hell is a place in the universe and it is also a condition. Second, hell is not only where life is wasted, hell is where life has no meaningful relationship to others. Nothing has any true relationship to anything else in hell. All is chaos, waste, and unrelated. When we walk into a house and into a room, we see everything there related to everything else. The furniture, the carpets, the pictures on the wall. Everything is there in terms of a relationship to everything else and everything together in its relationship to the use of the man who owns the home. But in a wastebasket, there is no relationship of anything to anything else. In a dump heap, there is no relationship, no connection between objects that are next to one another. They are without any meaningful relationship because they are in a dump heap. They are there because they have lost the capacity to be related to anything meaningfully. And for anything truly to be related to anything else, it must be related first of all to God and then in God to all things.
Many people today live in the suburbs of hell. They do not want any meaningful relationship to anything else. Some years ago, I was pastor in a community predominantly made up of retired people. And most of these people, sooner or later, found that they were living in hell. They had come to that community, a very lovely and attractive one, geographically. In many cases, to evade responsibility. They did not want to be near their children or grandchildren. They did not want to be involved. Most of them would not join any church or attend any church because they did not want to get involved. Most of them steered clear of getting too well acquainted with any people in the community because they did not want to get involved. With a net result that they very quickly found themselves in hell, in an isolation of their own making and a meaningless life. One of the greatest actresses of all history was a woman who was described as a tragic figure, perpetually filled with grief, misery, often characterized as the tragic actress of her generation. I realized recently why that woman's life was so much of a living hell. I read recently that she once admitted that she had played the part of Ophelia in Hamlet at least a hundred times before she ever learned how the play ended. All she was interested in was herself and her own role, her own part. And as soon as Ophelia was dead and she was off the stage, she was not interested in what went on on the stage or to read a word of Shakespeare's play beyond her part. But simply sat in her dressing room waiting for the curtain calls at the end of the play. Her absorption with itself was that total. Was it any wonder that her life was a living hell? Wednesday after midnight, I flew home from San Francisco airport where I had been to speak at a college. And a woman sat next to me and talked steadily all the way, although I tried to keep my nose into a magazine, but it was futile. <laughs> and she told me more about herself than I could possibly ever be interested in, but I did perk up my ears as she expounded her philosophy. It was very simple. She said, do you know that an orchid, once it's bruised, never heals. 
And she said, our hearts are the same way. Once they're hurt or bruised, they never heal. And so the way to live is never to allow anyone or anything to hurt you, never to get involved so that you can get hurt. And I would say she has lived by it, and hence her total absorption with herself. That woman is living in the suburbs of hell. In hell, all is chaos, waste, and unrelated. Every person in hell is totally alone because he has not the capacity to relate himself to God, therefore to anyone else. There is no community in hell. Third hell is separation from God. And this is the beginning of hell, wherever there is any separation from God. Hell is not the doctrine that God abandons men, it is the doctrine that men abandon God. C.S. Lewis described hell very ably when he said, Heaven is the habitation of those who say to God, Thy will be done. Hell is the habitation of those to whom God says, Thy will be done. For hell means that there is a fundamental and irrevocable difference between right and wrong. Every attempt to weaken the doctrine of hell is an attempt to introduce the doctrine of coexistence. It is a way of saying that good and evil are ultimate equally. That evil is just as wonderful a thing as good, and we should tolerate both. And today we hear a great deal about tolerance and love. They are simply other words for the doctrine of coexistence. For a doctrine that denies the validity of justice, and says that evil has every right to triumph because equal it is equally valid. It is equally on a par with good. And as a result, wherever you have hell dropping out of a church, you have coexistence with evil being preached. You have the new morality. You have every kind of doctrine justifying evil and parading as love and tolerance. But these doctrines of love and tolerance or of coexistence have a hatred of justice and of God. And they are simply ways of saying, 
Grant us equal rights to live with you so that we may then destroy you and deny your right to live. A century ago, Emory Storrs observed, when hell drops out of religion, justice drops out of politics. To deny hell is to assert the triumph of wrong. And it is to deny salvation. If there is no hell, it means there is no judgment and there is no damnation. Because there is nothing to be saved from. And so the denial of hell is the vindication of evil. But hell is a witness to the fact that a God of justice is on the throne. When people say they cannot believe in hell, they are saying, whether they realize it or not, that they refuse to believe that justice has any right to exist. They are saying that evil has a right to go its own way and to triumph and to destroy good. Because this is the purpose of evil. But Paul said to the Thessalonians, as they were under persecution, this is your comfort. God will deliver you. And he will yield vengeance. For the Eighth verse reading, taking vengeance, according to the marginal reading, can also be rendered yielding vengeance. He will yield vengeance to them. He will give them what their being demands. And he will destroy them and deliver us. And this is our comfort and our assurance. Hell thus, as we have seen, is a world of total brute factuality, a world in which everything is unrelated to everything else because it is a rubbish pile, a dump heap of the universe. Conversely, hell, being the world of total brute factuality and unrelated objects, Heaven is the world of total meaning in God for everything because it is totally related to God, is totally meaningful and totally related to everything else. Now to destroy man, man, you must simply isolate man from God and then man from man. Isolate man from all meaning, save man's own self-created existential meaning. There is no easier way to shatter men, to break them down, and to reduce their life to meaninglessness. Dostoevsky, in his account of his imprisonment in Siberia, the House of the Dead, 
calls attention to the effect of work on people. Although prisoners would grumble at it, there was no problem in working if you were building a fort or a public building or something of the sort, because it was meaningful work. But the easiest way to destroy prisoners was simply to give them meaningless work. To tell them, here's a pile of boulders, move it over there. When you've finished, move it back over here. When you've finished, move it back there, endlessly. Meaningless work. And it was this that had the most shattering, devastating effect on men. Because it reduced their life and their energy to total meaninglessness. It took away any purpose. The easiest way to break men is to work progressively through their education and through press, radio, and television to destroy their religious faith, to destroy the family, to destroy a sense of community. And do you know that it is illegal in the Soviet Union for you to give charity to anyone? This puts meaning in the relationship between man and man. They cannot have it. They work to break down every meaningful relationship between man and man. Recently, someone who had been in the Soviet Union and returned remarked that the thing that was, was most startling to him when he walked the streets of Moscow was that no one talked. Not a sound. If anyone spoke to anyone else on the streets of Moscow, they were foreigners. There was no relationship left it had been broken. So that not only has charity been removed as a dimension, but communication. And this is what the total state works to create too. To destroy God and to destroy meaning between man and man. To reduce man to total hell and then to offer itself as heaven and say, we will now provide meaning for your life through the total state. We will be God. We have separated you from God and we've separated you from men and now we as God will remake your life and give you meaning in every area, but it doesn't work. God's reality remains, and the total state is simply a precinct of hell, and it is under God's judgment. 
and in the face of every attempt by man to create hell on earth so then he can create his own heaven, the total state. God's declaration to his saints is that those that trouble you shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And the meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. God did not create the world that evil men might triumph in it. God created it for his own purpose and to show forth the riches of his grace and the glories of his kingdom. And therefore the destiny of this earth is not to fall into the hands of ungodly men, not to fall into the hands of the Satanism of the total state, to show forth the grace and the glory of God and to fulfill his purposes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thou hast called us to be thy blessed meek. That thou hast destined us not for bondage but for victory. That thou hast established and ordained a hell to signify the certainty of thy justice has called us to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and has declared that we shall inherit the earth and has given us such great promises spiritually and materially in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. Confirm us therefore in our most holy faith And make us strong therein, that we might stand fast in the liberty wherewith we have been freed, and that we may not be again entangled in the yoke of bondage. In Jesus' name, Amen. <coughs> Are there any questions at this time? Yes. It can be, but it's a more limited meaning. The word blessed does convey very definitely the meaning of happy, 
but it doesn't convey the uh, connotation of holy, sanctified, so that it is one side of the meaning of blessed, a very important side, but it limits the word too much. And so while it can be so translated, it does limit the original. I believe, therefore, it is best to remain uh, with the older translations which give it as blessed are the meaning. Yes? Uh, when you comment on Dante's Inferno and the order depicted in hell, then I can't be in No, uh, Dante's Inferno I hate to get started on this, but in uh, my book on the one and the many, I shall have a long pack, uh, a chapter on Dante. Dante is one of the most subversive men in the history of Western literature. He was a thoroughgoing statist. He does in the Divine Comedy very definitely say the best form of uh, economic order was communism. He was very hostile to the church and wanted the triumph of the empire over the church. And he believed that there should be a one world order of a communistic sort. Now, this was Dante, who is presented to us as one of the great religious figures of history. And he was very definitely hostile to the faith, and it was a good thing that his books were on the index for so many centuries, and they should have remained there. Yes? Ayn Rand very definitely leads us in this kind of direction, a very good observation, because Ayn Rand, while she is healthy in her reaction against this uh, sentimental doctrine of love of the liberals, has simply said uh, the affirmation of sheer egoism is the answer. And by reducing man to himself, she hopes she's going to establish some kind of meaningful relationship between people. And all she's going to do is to create hell her own way. Yes? In reference to Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand atheist. Yes, very definitely. Yes, she very definitely hates Christianity. Yes? I'm diverging slightly, but do you feel that in the Renaissance, when so much that we now judge as beautiful and that time was judged beautiful, uh, was created, does that indicate that the general population had a stronger faith in God in the fact that they could create that beauty rather than what we do now is not really beautiful. <laughs> the Renaissance was an age of humanism and statism and fantastic cruelty. And you find 
that the Renaissance, of course, was basically an anti-Christian movement. Its hatred of Christianity was tremendous, and it treated the faith with contempt. It also believed in statism, so that you had, for example, in Italy, where the Renaissance began, that whole area which previously had been living in relative peace and prosperity, becoming an area of the most vicious and degenerate tyrants. And the tyranny was fearful, the cruelty, the torture, the horror, almost beyond belief. And most of our books, textbooks today, and even more uh, clearly some of our research uh, volumes, avoid the truth about the Renaissance. They depict the medieval period in black colors and falsified. Then they come to the Renaissance when some of the greatest horrors ever perpetrated in all of history were perpetrated. When killing was a refined art and torture was routine. And they pass over all of this glibly. And except for a few figures, uh, they scarcely give you any awareness of the extent of the depravity of that era. It was a thoroughly anti-Christian era. And what our textbooks don't indicate is this, that the Reformation was first of all a reaction against the Renaissance, and the Counter-Reformation was also First of all, a reaction against the Renaissance and a house-cleaning on it. So that they were both anti-Renaissance or anti-humanist movements, as well as dealing with the theological issues one with another. The Renaissance humanism, however, returned as the Enlightenment and is again in power. But we have not seen horrors in our day to compare with what was routine at the time of the Renaissance, and it is glorified consistently. Moreover, in glorifying it, they overrate some of it. No question, some of the artists were very great. But I think you can find equally great artists in the preceding and succeeding periods. And we are not told a great deal about the perversions and depravities of some of the leading figures in the art of the Renaissance. It was a thoroughly degenerate era. Yes. And, uh, this may be too involved, I don't know, but in talking to people about the Bible, they mention that King James Version immediately left out the law, uh, books of the Bible, and on and on. Is there a quick? No. Uh, there are no lost books of the Bible left out. These are apocryphal books, obviously, uh, not canonical. They are books that were uh, forgeries. They represent nothing of any validity. So these so-called lost books, and there's a 
you can buy a volume of are just so much nonsense. You have then also the apocryphal books. The apocryphal books are Jewish writings between the Old and New Testament period which are not canonical, but some of them, uh, notably uh, the first book of Maccabees, have interesting and important historical information and Ecclesiasticus, or the Book of Ben Sirach, has some very interesting material reflecting the thinking of Jews in that intertestamental period. But we have the Bible, and we have it in its authentic text, and all such talk is aimed at destroying the authority of Scripture, and it is not valid. Moreover, the you find a lot about the various uh, manuscripts. The Masoretic text is the authentic text. It is the text of, in the Hebrew in which it was originally written, it is thoroughly dependable. So that, again, you have a great deal of nonsense written in this area about the text. But the Masoretic text has been vindicated over and over and over again. Yes. I'm sure you know a civil writer and whatnot will use the Moses Ethiopian wife. Uh, was she uh, a black woman? Or? No, because first of all, the Ethiopians, although they do represent a great deal of mixing today, are not an African people. And at that time, which was, of course, uh, several thousand years ago, they didn't have that element of mixture that they have acquired since. Ethiopia, in the ancient world, was an advanced country with quite a bit of culture. It was a Christian country in the early centuries, and quite advanced for some time, a center of a great deal of learning. And it drifted into heresy in the 4th and 5th centuries and began after that its decline. And today the church there is just a relic of superstition and the people have for uh, over a thousand years lived far more poorly than their ancestors did, and in greater ignorance. The clergy themselves are ignorant in a way that would have staggered the clergy of the early centuries in Ethiopia. But the Ethiopians even today look down upon the African peoples. There are three groups of peoples in Ethiopia. The Ethiopians, the Arabic peoples and the Negroid. And the Negroid are very heavily discriminated against by the other two. Yes? I was reading a short article uh, alluding to what they call the common man. And I was wondering where this comes from, saying common man. And it was suggested further along with there was the common denominator. This idea of the common man comes into the modern era 
as a result of the Enlightenment and of Rousseau, and a belief in democracy. If you believe in democracy, then you are going to say that law comes not from God, but from the people, because democracy means the most people or mob rule. Therefore, the people are important because out of them the law has to come. So you exalt the people, but the people cannot rule. Somebody has to rule. So the per person who rules, rules in the name of the people. Now, according to Rousseau, there is the common will of all the people, but the people don't always know what they really want and what they're destined to want. So you have the general will, that which truly represents what the people have in their minds. And this the rulers can embody and capture and represent. So that today in the name of democracy, in terms of this faith, people in Washington and Sacramento are working to take away local school boards, local self-government, any kind of sometimes right for you to determine things for yourself because they say a majority vote is not necessarily a democratic consensus. You don't know what in your heart you really want, but we, the experts, can tell you what in your heart you truly want because we know you better than you know yourself. And so what you truly want is what we say you want, and this is the democratic consensus. This is why if you go to a conference of many of these uh, liberal groups, you break up into sections and you determine what it is you want to work out a consensus from section to section and come together and then present it here. Well, before you begin to deliberate, they already know what the democratic consensus is going to be. So the section leader will tell you exactly or guide you into proper channels of thought, and will report to the group exactly what the democratic consensus is, so that the machinery of it is to inform you of what you ought to think in order to be in tune with the democratic consensus. Now, the common man, therefore, is exalted in name, but he is like the King of England. He has the name of uh, king. He reigns ostensibly, but he doesn't rule. He must not rule. That would be the worst possible thing. You know, when you have said that God will destroy the evil of the earth, now, I don't know if how this will come out, but in voting <coughs> with this election coming up, I, I know there's many of us that are very concerned with the candidates. Do you vote for the lesser of the evils to hasten our destruction, or do we, as we always do, ask God to guide us in our voting? help us to make the right decision, or do you just stay away from the polls when there are no 
candidates worth voting for when you know what they represent and what they're going to do? That's a big question. <laughs> now, uh, I would say, and it's a good one, a very good one, we have to move in terms of uh, this realization. In this world, we don't always have our choice between good and evil. Sometimes it's only between better and worse. And sometimes it's between the lesser of two evils. As a result, we have to sometimes, uh, and we should vote, vote in terms of that hard realization that we're not getting anybody who is too good. In fact, if anyone were really what we as Christians would want, he couldn't even be a candidate today because there isn't the character in the people. So sometimes we ha have to face the realization we vote for the lesser of two evils. On the other time, some, on the other hand, sometimes we have to be practical and vote strategically. Perhaps sometimes if we vote for the lesser of two evils, we might make it harder to get rid of that evil. For example, if you vote for a certain man, say a senator, who uh, represents ostensibly republicanism, but actually represents the opposition better, it's harder to get him out when he's your man than if you had someone from the opposition who might be a little worse and you could get out. So you have to weigh it in each case prayerfully, and uh, that's about all you can do. But in other words, you, you do, I know we should vote, mm -hmm. this is true, so we go ahead and do it, and we're cutting our own throats while we're doing it. No, we're not necessarily doing that, because the scripture does tell us this, that God makes all things work together for good to them that love him. Then we're on the call according to his purpose. So that God makes even our mistakes work together for good. So that we vote to the best of our knowledge and to the best of our understanding of what our conscience requires us, and we leave the results to God. We do our duty and the results are in God's hands. Yes. Kind of, it's kind of like I was talking to a neighbor of ours, mine in town, who's a public school in my district, that reading groups, uh, they have average and they have better and they have best. Mm -hmm. There is no lower, so this is kind of like candidates. Yes. <laughs> worse, worse, worse. Yes. <laughs> That's pretty good. Average for the lowest. Mm-hmm. Yes, Malcolm. I saw a very shocking the day. One of the little neighbor girls walking off the lawn. Well, our time is almost up, but since we've been talking about a grim subject, hell, I thought I'd end it on a little lighter note. <clears throat> I picked up a magazine the other day, a sample copy of which was sent me, and I encountered something which I think might end things on a slightly lighter note. It's from uh, a book of letters 
that Fred Allen wrote, and this one he wrote on June 18, 1932, in considerable indignation to the State of New York Insurance Department to complain about the treatment he'd received on an insurance policy. Dear Sir, the soullessness of corporations is something to stun you. I am myself a victim, and instead of being a man of wealth and honor to the community, I am now a relic of humanity, just from the hands of a surgeon who made an honest effort to restore me to the form in which I grew to manhood's estate. Let me review my case. I carry accident insurance policy in the blank indemnity company, by terms of which the company agreed to pay me $25 a week. This was 1932. During such time as I was prevented from working because of an accident, I went around last Sunday morning to a new house that is being built for me. I climbed the stairs, or rather the ladder that is where the stairs will be when the house is finished, and on the top floor I found a pile of bricks which were not needed there. Feeling industrious, I decided to remove the bricks. In the elevator shaft there was a rope and a pulley, and on one end of the rope was a barrel. I pulled the barrel up to the top, and after walking down the ladder, uh, and then fastened the rope firmly at the bottom of the shack. Then I climbed the ladder again and filled the barrel with bricks. Down the ladder I climbed again, five floors, mind you, and untied the rope to let the barrel down. The barrel was heavier than I was. <laughs> and before I had time to study over the proposition of the thoughtful man, I was going up the shaft with my speed increasing at every floor. <laughs> I thought of letting go of the rope, but before I had decided to do so, I was so high that it seemed more dangerous to let go than hold on. So I held on. Halfway up the elevator shaft, I met the barrel of bricks coming down. The encounter was brief and spirited. I got the worst of it but continued on my way toward the road. <laughs> that is, most of me went on, but much of my epidermis clung to the barrel and returned to earth. Then I struck the roof the same time the barrel struck the cellar. The shock knocked the breath out of me and the bottom out of the barrel. Then I was heavier than the empty barrel. <laughs> And I started down while the barrel started up. We went and met in the middle of our journey. And the barrel uppercut me, pounded my solar plexus, barked my shins, bruised my body, and skinned my face. When we became untangled, I resumed my downward journey, and the barrel went higher. I was soon at the bottom. I stopped so suddenly that I lost my presence of mind and let go of the road. <laughs> this released the barrel, which was at the top of the elevator. <laughs> And it fell five floors and landed squarely on top of me, and it landed hard, too. 
Now here is where the heartlessness of the blank indemnity company comes in. I sustained five accidents in two minutes. One on my way up the shaft when I met the barrel of bricks. The second when I met the roof. The third when I was descending and I met the empty barrel. The fourth when I struck the barrel. And the fifth when the barrel struck me. But the insurance man says it was one accident, not five. And instead of receiving payment for injuries at the rate of five times 25, I only got one $25 payment. I therefore enclose my policy and ask that you cancel the same. As I made up my mind that henceforth, I am not to be skinned by either Barrel or and any insurance company. Yours sincerely and regretfully, Fred Allen. <laughs> With that, I think we can stand this man.